We've been moving through this wonderful season of the Israelite journey that began in Exodus chapter 19, camped at the foot of Mount Sinai. And they camped there for a year. And we've been camped there for a year and a half. And we'll camp there for about six more months, Lord willing, because it takes us a little bit longer to get the depth of what God was giving them in that year that they were camped there. But I want to return your attention this morning to the beginning of our encampment, to the beginning of our place, camped at Sinai, and listening to this wondrous story that has been delivered to us in the ensuing pages. So our sermon text this morning is actually going to be two passages. We're going to look at Exodus chapter 19, verses 1 through 6, and our New Testament complementary passage will be Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. Now normally I just keep us in one of the Testaments, I'm actually going to spend, Lord willing, equal time in both of these passages showing the, the, the common ground and then taking us, uh, let the Lord take us uh, through his word in this journey. So, if you would, open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 19, and in honor of God's word, please stand. Exodus chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, hear God's word. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness. Then Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Thus far in the reading of God's word, please turn to the gospel according to Luke, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, and continuing in the reading of God's word. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for him in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, 
For behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning the child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, He was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. As far in the reading of God's word, let us pray. Almighty God, as we have read your wonderful word, your beautiful word that calls forth to us, we pray that your servants would say, speak, Lord, for we do hear. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. So I've been an aware adult Christian for about 35 years. And during that 35-year period, I cannot tell you how often I have read demographics, statistical analysis, all these sorts of things, talking about the decline of Christian influence in the West. And I think in many ways, we can see it firsthand. I don't think anybody would argue that the United States today, or the Western world in general, is more united around a Christian religion than it was, say, in the 1950s or 1940s. And of course, most of the stuff that I get, because of my calling, is about this Sunday school lesson or that program that's going to fix it all. But as I think about that, and as you think about what you and I can see with our own eyes, right? We see it. We're not going to have an argument, hopefully, as to whether or not the West, and the United States in particular, is more Christian influence today than it was in the 1950s. Uh, Is it different in its imperfections? Sure. But... But what has not declined is moral certainty. Think about that. While I think there has been an objective decline in Christian influence in the West, I don't think there's been any decline in moral certainty amongst people. We are out there protesting and burning. We are out there chanting and cheering. 
We are all morally certain. So what are we missing? What is missing when the gospel or Christianity no longer shapes generally a society, no longer shapes personally a family, no longer shapes you? What happened? to a society, to a family, to a person, in which the decline of the gospel influence is seen. And I think, again, objectively, we can see it all around. Uh, I'm sorry, brothers and sisters, we're living in clown world. We are absolutely, we, 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 we turned the bend a long time ago. We're now chasing down all the sub-narrative plots that were X'd out of the story early on because they were unbelievable. We, we now are in crazy clown world socially. We are blowing each other up all over the planet We are in chaos and destruction and darkness. And if you have an eye that is functional in your head, if you have an ear that is functional on either side of said head, you know that what I am saying is true. You know that what I am saying is true personally, You know that what I am saying you've seen in families. You know that what I am saying you see around us. And if you don't see it, you're blind. You're blind with a blindness that cannot be fixed by mortal man. Beloved, there is brokenness out there. There is nasty, chaos, ugly, gross, vile, murderous, nasty. Our political process has boiled down to this. You're either a Nazi, a fascist, a communist, or an anarchist. Either one, I hate you and want you dead. There we go. Now the reason that we come together is not so that I can paint grotesque pictures. Because beloved, your newsfeed does that. The reason we come together is to ask ourselves, is there a different one? Is there an alternative? And I want to show you two different pictures today. One, a picture that's given to an 80-year-old shepherd in the middle of nowhere. And another, a picture that's given to a bunch of anonymous shepherds that we'll never hear from again. 
And I want you to see how the one leads to the other. And the first picture is this quiet word that God speaks to Moses. And the explosion that happens afterwards. The story in Exodus 19 where God calls the people to himself is a continuation of a story that ultimately begins in Exodus chapter 3. Now, if you know your Bibles, you know generally the the story of the Bible, then you know the story. But in Exodus chapter 3, this 80-year-old shepherd is out wandering in the wilderness, and he sees an unusual sight, and he turns to that sight. And he hears God call him by name. And when Moses finally gets to the conclusion of that scene, he says, so who are you? And it's just like this, I am. Oceans are about to be split in two. People are going to walk on dry land through the middle of them. Armies are going to be destroyed in the ensuing flood. Mountains are going to be on fire. The desert sands are going to be filled with food. And I'm going to take a people and I'm going to make a mine. A people of priests. A treasured possession. My people. I am. While God spoke those words on that mountain to Moses, Pharaoh was going through his day. He was utterly unaware. He could not possibly care less. When Moses comes up to him, Pharaoh makes that abundantly clear. I do not know you. I do not know your God. (laughs) Pharaoh is utterly unaware. I'm sure he had a busy day packed with cabinet meetings where he's ruling the world. He's busy determining life and death for important people. Important people are busy selling their souls to get close to Pharaoh. And the seed of power. They're betraying one another. They're stabbing their friends in the back just to get where all the action is. Sound familiar? Utterly unaware and uncaring that some 80-year-old man out in the wilderness by himself saw a bush And heard the word. I am. And beloved, the rest of the story that we've been camped in for the last year and a half. Has been the story of this. Of this explosion. 
that brought down the greatest political empire of its day, that humbled the nations around, that lifted up God's people. And it's interesting that Moses doesn't start this story with his own story. Exodus chapter 3 is not the beginning of the story. Moses starts the story all the way back with all humanity. All mankind. Every single one of us. You and me, daughters of Adam and Eve, are connected here in this story. This story of a God who created in harmony and fellowship. This story of man and woman who broke that harmony and fellowship. This story of God seeking out by His mighty and outstretched hand a people. You. You. Me. To transform from death unto life. This has been the story that Moses has been playing out. And doing so in in grand pictures. Grand, amazing, visual, senses overwhelmed. Glorious ritual that are going to be repeated over and over and over again. Because again and again and again, we need to hear the story. The story of a Savior. The story of a sinner. The story of a broken heart. The story of healing. I need it again and again and again and again. The story of peace. Because brothers and sisters, if you by now think you're going to find it on your news feeds, if you by now think you're going to find it in the political process, if you by now think you're going to find it on one side or the other of a gun, You are so out in left field that I've got nothing for you. You are so far deluded that you are literally insane. If you think that trying harder and turning away more and more from the horrible truth that God commands you to love your neighbor as yourself. Burn it down. (laughs) Destroy that culture. From the horrible reality that God says, when I define what is holy and good and right, and I see a man, a woman, a boy, a girl, who will on their knees before me give me all that they are, I will give myself to them, and they will be nothing less than a treasure. A treasure to me. God refers to His people Israel throughout the Old Testament as a treasure. 
He who touches Israel touches the apple of my eye. Beloved, his people are his treasure. What a joy. What a a comfort and encouragement. Now, I'm not talking about parties or demographics or whatever. Because I'm not a party or a demographic. I'm me. I was born on these two feet. I'm going to die on these two feet. And spiritually on these two feet, I'm going to stand before the throne of judgment. And so are you. That's all I am. And that's all you are. And beloved, as people that God seeks to make treasures to Himself, He begins that glorious, glorious word. I am. But God also speaks a quiet word to Mary. At this point, I want to look for just a few minutes at Luke chapter 2 and the narrative there. Because it's interesting, the parallels. Because while Moses is gathered there before God on the mountain, that he's now going to bring the people back to and God is going to say these beautiful words of treasury and and kingdom of priests and holiness and his loving, beloved people. While Moses is there having that experience on Mount Sinai, Pharaoh is doing his thing utterly unaware. Right? Same in Luke chapter 2. Why are all the people in Bethlehem? It tells us at the beginning of the chapter. Caesar Augustus had said, everybody needs to get to your home place. Everybody needs to come together to be taxed. So Bethlehem is so overcrowded with cousins and second cousins and aunts and uncles and relatives that you can't even find a place to live, to, to, to sleep. And so this poor couple has to end up in somebody's barn. What are they all doing while they're there? Probably having a lot of family reunions. Probably rejoicing together. Certainly they're celebrating Caesar. (laughs) I'm pretty sure Caesar had other plans other than I want all the people in one spot and give me money. Pretty sure there was a lot of celebration around this and Caesar is Lord and all these things. And almost quietly, it's like it's like heaven tried to be quiet but couldn't help it. <laughs> almost quietly, an angel appears to a group of shepherds. While all this Caesar and taxing and Augustus and all that Quirinius stuff is going on, utterly unaware that there's a manger and that there's some shepherds on a field and that an angel comes and delivers this amazing news and then heaven just can't help itself. It has to let out a little bit of the explosion of glory in this. The the veil ripped just a little before it because, oh my goodness, the entire planet should have exploded at that moment. 
every star in the heavens would have been crying out glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace, goodwill towards men. So as you think of that story, there's a question that crosses my mind, because that's the way my mind works. These shepherds, do you ever hear from them again? The first shepherd, the 80-year-old guy, went and wrote five books. We know what happened because he wrote it all down for us. These shepherds, you never hear from again. So is this just a cute story? How did Luke know this? How did Luke know this story of the shepherds to be the only gospel writer to include it in his story? Verse 19 gives you the answer. Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Think about that. Young girl, probably 16 or so, maybe younger, having her first child in a strange town, in a barn, painful, frightening, embarrassing. And as this wondrous event that has been told by an angel and all of this, as she's holding this amazing son in her arms, wrapped for the first time, the door to the barn bursts open and a group of guys come in and go, you will not believe what just happened. And this girl looks up. And these guys tell her, we were out in our fields. This is what just happened to us. That's how we know the story. Luke chapter 2 and verse 19 tells you that's how we know the story. Mary treasured these things up and pondered them in her heart. She treasured them up and pondered them while that amazing son grew into an amazing boy who would at such a young age tell her, do you not know I must be in my father's house? Well, that amazing boy grew up into an amazing young man who when she went, because it was like getting over the line here, said, who are my mother and who are my brothers? Well, that amazing boy was shredding her soul. Simeon will tell her in the next few verses, it's verse 33, I believe, of Luke chapter 2. She will be a sword, he will be a sword through your very soul. And beloved Mary knew that sword deep in her soul when she looked up at that beautiful, amazing son on the cross, dying. She knew that the angels had proclaimed, she knew that prophets had spoken. 
She knew that she was the mother in Israel. She knew. She treasured this. She didn't understand. But boy, she pondered. But that's not the end of Mary's story with this engagement with this story of shepherds, is it? Because Jesus, as He's hanging on that cross, looks down at her and He says to His beloved disciple, John, John, take care of Mary. And we know that that beloved disciple went on and ministered for years and years and years afterwards. And we know that Mary still pondered... (laughs) Who is this? What? What happened? What did I do? What, what, what came from me? What? Who is this? Ama- this is Christ. The Messiah. While the crowds in the background are screaming, Caesar is Lord. Some angels are telling a girl in a barn, I'm sorry, some shepherds are telling a girl in a barn that some angels told them, this baby is Lord. Nobody noticed it. Nobody in Bethlehem cared. And beloved, that message has blown the world up. That little quiet word made flesh dwelling amongst us. That little quiet word has blown throughout the world. And I don't care what your background is. I don't care what your faith is. That's an objective fact. This little anonymous unknown event that happened in Bethlehem has shaped so many lives and so many societies. But beloved, it only shapes a life. It only shapes a society when it shapes a heart. That's what everybody gets wrong. Everybody who thinks it's a bunch of rules, it's going through the motions, do this, do that, don't do this, do that. They just all get it wrong. Because I will not say, I think, I think it would be, at first it would be stupid of me to say it, but I would never say That my love for my wife is the same category as my love for my dog. (laughs) Or my books. If you've been in my home, you know I love books. (laughs) Or my love. One of those, one of those I treasure. And beloved, that's God's love for you. 
He said in Leviticus 19, you are my treasure. And this word that the angel spoke and this event of the shepherds breaking in was Mary's treasure. It was something that she held tight through difficult seasons in life. Through painful events and hard questions. Mary held that treasure. Along with many others. She treasured these things. It all began with a quiet word. I am. A baby in a barn. (laughs) And look what's happened. That amazing son, that amazing Messiah, that amazing King David's greater son has risen. And the chaos and cruelty of Caesar's world, beloved, is even more brutal today than it was back when the Egyptians were doing it. Back when the Romans were doing it. It's still just as ugly. But here, an un noticed word. An unnoticed and unacknowledged eternal word made flesh dwelling amongst you. We beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. What a sight. It begins with a simple word. It's nourished by a simple word. It's strengthened by a simple sacrament. Nothing ornate here. Bread and wine. It's a very simple ritual. We could gussy stuff up. We could swing... Incense, have candles, all kinds of cool things. But I like the simplicity. I like the simplicity because it helps us keep focused on really what's basic. Really what this is about. Because really what this is about is God's word spoken, God's word heard, God's word handled, God's word tasted God's Word, seen all of this in our senses, being fed and encouraging and growing so that each time we come, we come anemic, we come weak, and we leave strengthened and strong and filled. The heart of all of these stories. Moses' story back in the Old Testament began with a whole bunch of lambs and goats and bulls, a whole lot of blood, a whole lot of death, a whole lot of continual blood and death, all saying the same thing. Somebody else must die so that I don't. Until finally it all built its most 
perfect, living and in color presentation in Christ Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And none of this matters a hill of beans if it's not your sin and my sin. I'm fine with the world getting cleaned up as long as I don't have to do anything. Did he take my sin? That's what I profess. Did he take your sin? That's what you confess. That's what you proclaim when you come to this table. That he is your Lamb of God who takes away your sin. He gives us these elements, the bread and the wine, so that we not only see the breaking and the tearing apart, the violence, just a tiny little speck of a picture of what happened to it. We also see the cup blood. We taste the wine, the joy. And in this amazing mystery, in this amazing jumble that we will try to figure out through the rest of eternity, we'll only come back and look at different facets of it at different moments in the rest of our lives. This amazing mystery of how Jesus Christ can both be a reminder of my sin and guilt, and a reminder of my acceptance and love. A reminder of what He has done for me and for you. Beloved, let me give you this one last thought. You and I will only be able to reflect the Jesus that we see. If the Jesus that you see is one that looks in condescension, one that looks in judgment, he'll be reflected on that face. He'll be reflected in that life. If the Jesus that you see is one of mercy, and love, and compassion, and gentleness, and grace, and he'll be reflected on your face. And he'll be reflected in your life. And that is at its heart what we confess. His love and mercy, grace, acceptance and nourishing. Let us pray. Almighty God and gracious Heavenly Father, even as we see these quiet words spoken, So many thousands of years ago, we hear that quiet word now. We see that quiet word and we taste. May that word be the aroma of our lives. In his name we pray. Amen.